attention, attention please. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is on the air. Hello and welcome to the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. My name is Christopher Thomason. I am your host for this and many, many more trips down memory lane. The Camp Ojibwa History Podcast is a podcast dedicated to collecting the stories, the history, the memories of Camp Ojibwa for Boys in Eagle River, Wisconsin, founded 1928. This week's guest on the podcast, Ken Rafi. Ken Rafi. Uh, Rafi and I sit down couple months ago, had a great talk. Uh, rarely has anyone come into the podcast so prepared. He started right in like a house of fire. I barely had to talk. It was great. You're going to love it. You're not going to hear much of me this week. It's fantastic. In fact, we had such a good talk and so much good stuff. It's going to be a two-parter. So today we'll do part one of Ken and then come back on Wednesday and uh, hear the second half of the interview. It is great. He's got a ton of great stories. And we just had a really good time. And, and there are a few guys out there who love camp as much as Ken Rafi. I can tell you that. Before we get going, of course, don't forget, if you have not gotten your brick yet, while there's still time, uh, stop by the website, campojibahistory.org, click on Walk of Fame, and get your commemorative brick right there under the Collegiate Week bench at Camp Ojibwa. We're not going to be doing them for much longer. Uh, and when we close them out this time, that'll be the end of it. So get them while you can. And of course, swing by and see some of the new video stuff we've been putting up. A lot of new video, and uh, I think I've got audio of the 69 Jubilee, which we'll, you'll hear about later in today's show. So I'm going to get that up as well. You can find that on the sounds page at the website. Okay, enough of that. Here we go. Ken Rafi on the Camp Ojibwa History Podcast. First and foremost, for the record, please state your name and years at camp. First and foremost, Barry Feldman. No, wait. Sorry, Barry wanted me to mention his name. So, Barry, I got it out of the way. It's actually Ken Rafi. Just messing with everybody, because that's what I like to do. Uh, I started in 1966. I was a camper for four years, a counselor for five Got married in 1975 and couldn't go back to camp, but I don't think I've missed a summer since 1966. Right. So officially 1966 till present. Very nice. Very nice. So how do you first get in touch with Camp Ojibwa? Or just how, to, how does camp first get in touch? Interesting story. Because I was totally not on that grid at all. I didn't know anybody that went to camp. Where, My, where did you live? I lived in Wilmette. Okay. And there weren't a lot of Wilmette oh, people. Right. yeah. Oddly enough, I lived two blocks or three blocks from Mickey Schwartz, Mickey and Riva. But I didn't know anything <laughs> about camp. None of my friends went to camp. I never even heard of the word Ojibwa. 
1965, my parents wanted to send me to overnight camp, and I absolutely poo-pooed it, not going, not going to happen. I played Little League. I got my friends oh, in sure. Chicago, not leaving the camp, and they just let it go. My mother did not like me running around at night in the summer. She wanted me home at dusk. She'd start yelling my name, and I would be playing ball with my friends. I'd have to come home. So she knew she had to get me out of mm. Chicago for the summers for her own peace of mind. Sure. And she also knew that she thought that camp would be a good fit for me. But I had absolutely no desire. So in the winter of 65, my mother says... I have a man coming over from camp. He wants to talk to you about summer camp next summer. This is probably January of 66. And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> I have no intention of going away to camp. I'm 12 years old. I have all my friends here. Not going to camp. She said, that's fine. But he's coming over next Sunday to talk to you. You don't have to go, but you have to listen. I said, okay, fair enough. Yeah. I was a pretty good kid, so I figured that would just end that conversation. <laughs> Fast forward, Sunday comes along. I come home. I hide under my bed. I am not <laughs> listening to this man. I am not going to camp. Ain't going to happen. And she says, you don't have to go. You don't have to go, but he's going to be here in like 10 minutes. Listen to him, and then when you're done, we just say, thank you very much. He leaves. You don't have to go to camp. Fair enough. Very reasonable. Al walks in. Never met him. Don't know Ojibwa. Don't know summer camp. Not going. Not going. I sit on the couch in the living room. He puts up the uh, screen. He starts the slide projector. You know, it's <laughs> 1966. Of course. So he starts showing the slides of camp. And I'm looking, and I'm looking, and the lights go up. He's done with his 20-minute presentation of a camp day. I look at him, and I say, I'll go. <laughs> My mother passes out. <laughs> he looks at me like, you know, okay. Sure. You know, he, <laughs> That's what I do. That's what we do. To this day, honest to God, to this day, I don't know what happened. Hmm. Because I had no intention of going away. I didn't know anybody there. Yeah. I'm this 12-year-old kid alone that's going to go to camp. I don't know anybody, and I say, I'll go. And I got to tell you, that decision, you know, kind of fate or whatever in life, impacted and changed my entire life. Because mm. I met all my friends today. Barry Feldman introduced me to my wife. Nice. So everything happened from that moment Wow. In 1966, from Hal Schwartz coming into my living room. And to this day, I think about it, and I say, what did he say? What did he do? There was just something about mm. him that was so charismatic, so mesmerizing to this 12-year-old boy. Yeah. That water skiing in Wisconsin in June seemed pretty cool. Yeah. But it was so weird because I don't know what. I was so dead set against it. So anyway, fast forward to I say, I'll go. My mom goes, what? She <laughs> signs me up. Here we go. Nice. So now it's maybe a week before camp buses are leaving. I'm the only Wilmet kid. I don't know anybody. Mm. No friends, no counselors, zero. I'm that kid. 
they'll lonely kid on the bus. Here's a picture. I brought a couple. This little 12-year-old kid <laughs> gets on the bus. A week before I go, I'm playing with fireworks, just messing around in the backyard, and I had a flare. And I lit the flare, and it was going to spark and shoot, and it didn't go off. And being the bright 12-year-old kid that I was, oh, no. I blew into it, and it blew off right in my eye. Oh. And it burned my eye and my face. Where they kind of rushed me to the eye doctor. I kind of uh, uh, burnt a cornea or something, and he puts a patch on my eye and says, you can go to camp. The patch stays on for two weeks, no water. Oh. So now... <laughs> I'm this poor, lonely 12-year-old kid going up to camp with a patch on my eye. Brutal. I'm just, this is set up for failure. <laughs> Total failure. So I go to uh, the camp buses, and I got to camp because my mother was friends with Gary Kagan's mother. Gary okay. Kagan had gone there. Even though he was a little older, I didn't know him that well, but that was the connection. I see. So that's how she found out about she it. She knew about camp from her friend Rochelle that her son went there. And my mother was always looking out for me sure. and knew that Ojibwe was one of the better camps around. And if it was good enough for Rochelle and Gary, then she felt comfortable with it. So that's how I got to it. So we go to the buses in Old Orchard. I remember this well. There, all the Keishan buses are lined up. I've got my stuff with me, my lunch or whatever. And I'm really scared because I don't know a soul. Sure. And I hear come these buses that are driving me to somewhere in Wisconsin. It's like, what am I doing? Now I'm rethinking this Al Schwartz <laughs> magnetism. It's like, what am I doing? So I get on the bus, and I'm that quiet kid sitting in the middle of the bus. And I get to be friendly with my seatmate, who is Keith Zimmerman. Nice kid, nice man. I see him around every now and then. And we ride up to camp for this six-hour ride, and I get to be very friendly with him. You know, this is great, great, great. I get off the bus. We pull into camp. I'd never seen it before, and I'm, like, going, whoa, you know, awesome. Where am I? What am I doing here? Yeah. But I got Keith. He's my buddy. And we get off the bus. There's a counselor with a clipboard. And Keith's in cabin seven, I'm in cabin 11. So now I am toasted because I know nobody again. You know, right. my friend, here's <laughs> Your one my friend. friend is so much younger. <laughs> he, and he actually wasn't that younger. But back then, there wasn't a lot of age difference between. Right. It just, I got rounded up and he got rounded down. It could have been because a counselor wanted him. Right. It right. could have been, they didn't know where to put me. It could have been a lot of reasons. But 11 and 7. So I'm sent to cabin 11, which in 1966 was a crazy, crazy cabin. It had a one-and-done counselor. Um, uh, I can't think of his name. I'll think of it. And the, the kids in that cabin were just those kind of wild, crazy kids mm. that were just disruptive, but fun, but crazy, <laughs> kind of not the real kind of cabin that I needed to enter the Ojibwe right. process. <laughs> not, not a way to ease in. <laughs> not a way to ease in. It was kind of like, you know, survive it. Yeah. But for whatever the reason, and, you know, maybe it was me, this shy little 12-year-old kid, I kind of fit in. They kind of liked me, mm. which was a good thing because I think had they not liked me, they were the kind of kids that would have made it perfectly clear that I was not liked. Yeah. A couple of them actually uh, 
Steve Kahn, Ronnie Berman, I think that year, I'm pretty sure it was that year in 66, burnt the rifle range down. <laughs> the rifle range had mattresses, you know, sure. that you would lay on. Mm -hmm. And they went in there for a cigarette at midnight and left the cigarette <laughs> smolder. And at 2 in the morning, Al is hosing down the rifle range because they burnt it down. They were wow. good guys. Sure. They were a little crazy, <laughs> but they liked me. So I was able to... Um, I was able to survive my first year, but I didn't really know anybody, mm. and I started to make friends, just kind of doing what I did. I think I was kind of quiet. You know, I just minded my own business. I, I listened to my counselors, and but you were a pretty, you were a good athlete, or you were, you know, you I was a little in, kid, right? But I was decent. Yeah, because so, you've been playing little league and everything, so you already had yeah, a little bit yeah, under your yes. belt. Yes, I never. I don't think I'd ever played softball, and I could tell you, I don't think I'd ever played tennis before. I wasn't a oh. country club kid, where a lot of these. Oh sure, of course. A lot of the kids at camp, parents were fortunate enough to join and belong to country clubs. I wasn't, so I, had, I had played golf at public courses with my father, but I don't think I'd ever played tennis, and I had never played sixteen in softball. Hmm. I always played hardball, and in cabin eleven in nineteen sixty six, it was watermelon league. So it was the first time that I had really played a lot of 16-inch softball. Sure. But I knew how to play baseball. I was able to pick it up relatively quickly, even though I was kind of a skinny little kid, and 16 inches, kind of a big boy's game. But I was okay at it, and I was, I was relatively fast. But I think what saved me, honestly, what made it is I think people just liked me because I was relatively friendly and got along with everybody. Mm. And as camp progressed that year, I kind of got into it, I was a, I was picked at the second powwow, which looking back on was kind of a big deal yeah, back then for a brand new guy, especially brand new guy. The first powwow was for the twelve-year-olds that didn't get it the year before, right? <laughs> for whatever the reason, sure. so they weren't so good guys. They got them in the first powwow. Yeah. The second powwow, you had to be decent, and right. I think I was decent. And the third powwow. You kind of was for the kids that just they wanted to come back next year. Right. So being a, a first year kid, second powwow in 1966, and, and I only look at that because in uh, looking on the uh, on the site and looking at some of the old warriors, I saw that and I started to remember that that was a big deal. We yeah. were the Braves was a very big deal being uh, picked at a powwow, being initiated into the Braves doing the whole silence thing, and that whole thing was really a big deal for this 12-year-old kid that knew nothing about anything. And now here I am, you know, being, you know, tapped on the shoulder at a powwow, you know, rise neophyte, back of the line, meet me in the woods with a pillow sheet, a uh, pillowcase over your head at midnight, <laughs> and you can't talk the next day. Yeah. It was different, yeah, but I loved sure. it. Something about it, I loved it. Which brings me to an important word. I've heard you say it. And Denny says it. What's the? Uh, give me the quote. You can you can feel it oh, when people say that it's it's uh, hard to explain but easy to feel. Yes, hard to explain but easy to feel. To me, that definition is love. It is pure, unadulterated. The meaning of love, whether it's a love of a spouse or a child, a pet. When you have that feeling, when you drive up to camp. When you have that feeling when, you, when you're with your camp buddies, mm. it's love. It's what it is. In my world, it's what it is. And I'm not a real lovey-dovey, you sure. know, uh, <laughs> kind of guy. Yeah. But I could tell you, if I had a divine love, it would be that feeling that you and Denny explain, that feeling that I get when I go to camp, when I'm back mm. there. There's a peace. 
there is a tranquility, there is an acceptance, there is something about that, that that to me just resonates the word love. Mm. And I loved everything about camp, everything. And there was really no reason or, or um, it, there's no reason that I was going to go up there and love everything because right. if my counselor, Dave Green, that was his name, if he wasn't nice to me, or if Ronnie Berman or Steve Kahn were mean to me sure. or bullying me or whatever, but they didn't. And so it just worked out right for me. But when I hear you and Denny say that, I say, you know, that's what love is. It's that mm. feeling. And I get it talking about camp. I get it going to visit. I get it if I see my buddies downtown. I get it if I, I was in the airport. This happens to me a lot. Um, I was a counselor for five years, so I had a lot of kids that I was their counselor. Oh, sure. I was in Fort Lauderdale over Christmas, and a kid stops me at an airport. You know, I hadn't seen this kid since he was 12, and he says, hey, Rafi. And I said, hey, who are you? I, I, just, <laughs> I just go right at it because, you know, there's no way right. that I could know these time. kids. And he told me who it was, and I, you know, how are you? Great. And these guys are all married and have kids now. Sure. But there's still that instant bond and instant feeling of acceptance when you meet your fellow Ojibwa brother. Yeah. I was um, I was real touched in hearing all of these podcasts, but I think the one that especially I thought was moving, because it it it, it it's that feeling that I get a lot is Marshall Domash mm. when he talked about seeing Monty Feldman in Japan yeah. during World War II. Can you imagine? You know it's, the I horror mean, of war. Right. They're on the other side of the world. Here comes these two Ojibwa buddies, and they see each other on the same plane. Just fate puts them on the same plane. When they saw each other, when their eyes made contact, that that feeling was incredible. And when Marshall was talking about it, he just loved Monty. He loved camp. Yeah, We love Barry and camp, and it's just all about that. So without getting real mushy, sorry, guys, I just kind of had to go there. That's what it meant to me. I was very lucky, and to this day. It shaped my life. Greatest thing that ever happened to me, by far. Greatest thing that ever happened to me because I wouldn't be married and have the kids. I don't think my life would be totally different had yeah. I not yet said yes to Al Schwartz. And speaking of Al Schwartz, and a lot of people talk about Al, and sure. you didn't get a chance to know him. Right. Incredible. He was an incredible guy. And, and I think everybody that passed through camp then and now owe it to him, his vision his his outlook on life, what he taught me, what he taught everybody else. He was a man among men. He was incredible. And he was very, uh, I, I would say I knew him quite well. He was very down to earth and, 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 and just a regular guy, but he was so inspiring. He would teach you. He would tell you how, what you should do, the right way to do things, the wrong way to do things. That wasn't right. Do it this way, Kenny. This is how you need to grow up. He, he liked me, and I spent a lot of time with him. When, um, when trucks would pull in with the uh, Becker meat shipment or the Cajotas Paoli vegetable shipment, <laughs> these are names from 1966, nice. trucks would, the semis would roll in mm -hmm. and back up, and most people would run away. 
because if Al saw you, he'd go, hey, Commander, hey, you know, <laughs> Prince Charming, over sure. here, help me. He needed people to pull the boxes off the truck. And people, a lot of people wouldn't want to do that. I, when I'd see the trucks roll in, I'd run to the truck. Al, can I help you? Mm. And I think he loved that. I think he loved that spirit. And there were a bunch of guys that did it. He loved that spirit of volunteering, the spirit of camps, great. If you need help unloading the truck to make our dinner tomorrow night, we're going to help you. He loved that in a person. Yeah. And and I spent a lot of time with Al. I was camp shopper for a couple of years and would just be with Al in the office a lot, in the kitchen a lot. Al didn't need anything from town. Or he'd say, hey, Kenny, I've got to go to <laughs> Rhinelander to pick up an air shipment of salami and bologna. You want to go with me? Mm. Sure. I loved it. Yeah, for sure. I got to spend an hour each way in the station wagon. Al would drive there. I would drive back and just talk. And he told me about it's just the stories of camp in the 20s about how he interacted with town and anti-Semitism and building the camp and how to do this. And, and then I would walk with him around town. We'd go in town on errands, and he'd, he'd greet each shopkeeper with a big hello. He'd bring him cookies from Otto. He mm. just, you could just sense that you had to learn from this man because he taught people how to be better people. He was incredible. I spent a lot of time with him, and I also spent a lot of time after camp. He would winter in Palm Springs, and Mary Lou and I would go out and visit her grandparents in Palm Springs. And would have dinner with Alan Pearl, wow. would play tennis with them in the earlier days when they were mm -hmm. still playing tennis. We'd go to Sunrise Country Club and meet them for tennis, stay for dinner, just really, really, really got to know them yeah. as, as grandparents. And I had great grandparents, fabulous grandparents, but they weren't Al and right. they weren't Pearl. These people were incredible. They were such so important to me, like as were Mickey and Riva. Denny and Sandy, Harvey and Ellen Weinberg, mm. aunts and uncles to me, my extended family. These were the people that raised me. I started late. I started at 12. I was kind of a young adult, and they kind of mentored me and nurtured me, I yeah. think, to be a better person, all of them. And Al and Pearl were like grandparents to me. Yeah. You cannot, you cannot underestimate how much camp can be family. Especially if, if you if your heart's open to that, camp is there for that. Incredible today, and and I have some notes. Um, obviously, I have some names that I, I want to remember, but I have some normal. I, I tell my wife I have normal friends, <laughs> but then I have my camp my camp brother friends yeah. that aren't just normal friends. These people are family, mm -hmm. and I started in 1966. Barry Feldman. I didn't meet him for a couple years. Because uh, when I was in 11, he was in 12. When I was in 12, he was in 13. Mm. And then we got to be friendly. And then we were bunkmates in 13 and then went to high school together. So instant, relatively instant best friendship. And to this day, best friend, best man at my wedding. And I met him at camp. And if I didn't go to camp, I wouldn't have met him. And, and he certainly is an important part of my life. And he wanted me to say that, which is, <laughs> which is something a best friend can do. Sure. I, I brought in a, my sufficiently. I brought in my Ojibwe jacket. And it's a funny story with my Ojibwe <clears throat> jacket. I started at 12. I was bar mitzvahed later in 1966. I was bar mitzvahed in October 66. And I didn't know 
that to get an Ojibwe jacket, you had to invite Alan Pearl, sure. Mickey and Reva to your bar mitzvah. That, that, that was that was no secret in the day. That was but I didn't know it right because mm-hmm. I was twelve and I didn't even know what an Ojibwe jacket was. I saw some kids that can't have them had them. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how you got it. So I go to camp. I get bar mitzvah in October and I didn't invite them because it was my first summer and I knew them, but I didn't know them that well. Right. Sure. You know, I didn't go to postseason. You know, my older brother didn't go. So I didn't invite them. So I never got an Ojibwe jacket. So fast forward, it's probably 19... I got married in 1975. I'm going to say 1980-something. Oh, wow. I'm in Palm Springs with Al. I said, Al, I got to ask you a favor. I didn't know about the Ojibwe jackets and the bar mitzvah presents. I've always wanted one. Will you get me one? Absolutely. No problem. That summer, I when he came back from uh, when he came back from Palm Springs, he called me, come over. He gives me this Ojibwe jacket. Incredible. Amazing. Amazing. I've had. I don't wear it, but I keep it in my closet. I look mm-hmm. at it all the time as just a reminder, obviously, of that, uh, of of what how special Al was and Al Al and Pearl were to me. But just as a incredible, incredible gift from him mm. that he cared enough about me 30 years later or whatever right. to make sure that Kenny got his Ojibwe jacket. That's amazing. It, it really is a nice story, and that's yeah. what he was about. He was really a man among, uh, among men. He was incredible, a terrific mentor. I was very – obviously, when he, when he got older, it was hard to see him age because your hero – should never get older. Sure, of course. You know, he should always be Al locked in in 1966 doing exercises, you know, morning dipper shower. That should be Al. And in my mind, he is. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, a terrific legacy to him. I picture that vital, vibrant man and woman, how they were to me in the late 60s. That's how I remember him now, and I think that's a great gift that he gave me, and that's nice that I could think of him that way. Yeah. Speaking sure. of Dipper Shower, Chris. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. I'm making your job very easy, right? <laughs> I love it. I could tell you unequivocally I was a shower guy. Mm. The last thing I was doing in the morning was getting into that cold lake. <laughs> Never going to happen. I like going to the lake now when I come up uh, in uh, August. Well, sure, in August. It's, it's warm. <laughs> but when this kid from Omelette in 1966 was given the choice of a shower or jump in the lake, ain't happening in the lake. And the funny story with that is uh, in I was in cabin 11 in 1966. In 1967, I was in cabin... 12. Steve Lewis was my counselor. Steve Lewis is my accountant now. Mm. I see him all the time. <laughs> and Scott Levenfeld, who is also a counselor out there, was, is my attorney now. I see him all the time. I am, and Mickey is my insurance man. I am surrounded <laughs> by Ojibwe. But that's okay, because yeah. I really do know that on important things like those, they're family. Right. And right. I would trust Nobody more than those three people with anything that is going on in my life because they're my Ojibwe family. So in 1967, Steve, who is an accountant, would monitor the his kids going into the lake, as the counselors had to do. Sure. And he'd stand by the front door in cabin 12 as I was coming back into. And what I would do is I'd go in the shower house, and I would stick my head under the shower... <laughs> And just get it wet 
because there was no hot water left. Right. And I didn't want to take a shower. And I figured I'd just get my hair wet. And I would take my robe and I'd put it up. You know, I'd hold it over my chin <laughs> so my hair would be wet. Sure. And I'd come in kind of shivering. And Steve would look at me. And he knew something, you know, was a little <laughs> amiss. And he, it's really funny. I picture him doing this. And I kid about it when I see him now if we're sitting in his office. He would take his hand and he would put it down the back of my neck to feel if it was wet or if it was dry. <laughs> I said, Steve, really? He goes, Kenny, you didn't shower. I said, Steve, you go back and shower. So I'd go back and I'd take a shower, but he would call me on it and he'd make sure by checking <laughs> that I was showering. <laughs> really, Steve, do I really have to take a shower? Yes, you have to take a shower, Kenny. But that's what a good counselor did. Absolutely. That's Absolutely. what he did. It's funny, just talking about Cabin 12, as we're jumping around, helter skelter, kind of all over the place. I think I'm the only guy in Ojibwe history to have been a camper, a junior counselor, a counselor, and a postseason, a parent, and a grandparent, all in Cabin 12. <laughs> that's a lot of generations that's in Cabin 12. That's a lot of 12. Cabin 12. You should get a plaque in there. I should, you know what? You, you, We'll in talk theory, to I should. Yeah, we'll talk to Crafty I, this summer. We'll put, up, we'll put together yeah, a little something. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think it's plaque-worthy, but I think it is really kind of funny that, yeah. you know, that I've spent a lot of time in Cabin 12. Yeah, for sure. I love Cabin 12. So I've checked off a bunch of things. <laughs> well, let's talk about, so we talked about Barry Feldman, but uh, yes. who, are, who are your other guys who you end up being good friends with um, well, during your camp years? I could tell you that just by... My ushers at my wedding. I got married in 1975. I had three brothers-in-law, so the three brother-in-laws were obviously ushers. Sure. But the other ones were Barry Feldman, best man, Dave Mattisar, usher, Grant Bagan, usher, Eddie Cohn, usher, Steve Rosen, usher, Scott Levenfeld, usher. Scott's my lawyer now. So out of the nine, six were my Ojibwe buddies. That's amazing. Incredible. And I still see them all today it really is incredible how really nothing has changed yeah and that doesn't even count your connection now with the boys of summer and coming no. up with those guys over no over. and that's a whole other crew of ojibwe guys. absolutely i yes there's just you know there's something in, uh, nice about that ojibwe brotherhood that it just is everlasting some people i see more than others sure but it's amazing living in chicago amazing how every week there is an ojibwe touch of a mention a friend of this or a that or something yeah that there is a connection to which is nice I, yeah. I i actually really like that it's it makes me feel comfortable and we laugh and our wives look at us like really you're telling that story again you're <laughs> laughing at that again you know part of the nice thing about the friendship is we just all laugh at each other's stories because that's what brothers do absolutely that's Absolutely. What we do. No matter how many times we've heard them, they're still funny to us. Absolutely. That's true. Well, touching on the boys of summer, tell me a little bit about how you got involved with those guys and how that worked out. Uh, I think Barry invited me in, to be honest with you. I, uh, I always like going back to camp. Um, I maybe went back post once or twice, but I couldn't go back in the summer because I was coaching travel baseball mm. with three boys. I coached travel baseball, 9s, 10s, 11s, 12s, 13s, 14s, 16s, 18s. I spent a lot of time coaching travel baseball, which was all summer long, weekend tournaments. So there were a few summers I couldn't go up that I had to wait till post. Oh, I but see. then 
when that stopped, I, I started with it, and then Barry said, you know, start back up again. Come back with us. I, I'm grandfathered in. So I ended up going back with them, which is really a lot of fun. They're terrific guys, and we have a great, great time up there for those three days. Plus, my son Matt's a counselor, right. which I enjoy, obviously, seeing him. He was never – none of my boys went to camp. Go figure. You sure. know, I have three boys, but life just dictated that they couldn't get their summers off to go to camp. So now that Matt's a counselor, I get really double pleasure. Looking at him up there really is nice that he yeah. can experience in his own way. It's different, but knowing that he's having fun at a place that obviously was so important to me. Yeah, for sure. So I love the boys' a summer trip. And I'm going to come up, I think, a few times this year just to come up a few times this year. Nice. I'm going to uh, visit a few times. You're not rid of me yet. <laughs> Uh, I'll well, give you a good Kevin 13 story as good. I'm progressing. 11, 12, 13. Let's do it. 1969, Kevin 13. I'm in the Jubilee, and I'm in white face as the Elliot was doing the Jubilee and Mager and Fletcher and Paul James, and they cast me as the Joel Gray white-faced. Oh, from uh, Cabaret. Cabaret. I am the... Um, the MC. The MC. <laughs> Talk about a guy who didn't want it then, who doesn't want it now. It was, I was petrified. Sure. Petrified to be on stage. I didn't, nothing about it. You know, there's some guys who liked it. Right, absolutely. Hated it. <laughs> hated everything about being on stage. But... I was the MC. I had to sing Vilcomen. Sure. Open the show. The curtain opens. The parents are there. I still remember an out-of-body experience of being so petrified. In the audience is Leo DeRocher, oh, the Cubs gross. manager. Yeah. Sure. And to this day, when they talk about the fall of the 1969 Cubs, they always say it happened when Leo went to camp to visit his stepson and lied that he wasn't feeling well. And he, we got word that he was coming up to Eagle River, the manager of the Cubs. And obviously this is before internet, right. cell phone. You know, word gets out that Harvey Weinberg, who was his, his agent uh, um, accountant, Harvey's bringing Leo up to visit his stepson. Mm. We're all abuzz, but the curtain opens. There's 200 parents in the rec hall. And Leo's out there, and I'm about ready to pass out because I got to sing this song. <laughs> I could feel it like it was yesterday, this panic of just say the words, sing the words. It was terrible. It was terrible. If anybody has a recording of it, never play it for me. <laughs> I do not want to hear it. But anyway, so I do that. I do the song, The Jubilee Goes. And The Jubilee was a huge deal back then, mm -hmm. huge deal. In the rec hall, the parents loved it. You know, it Especially just was, those those post minstrel show for the next five to ten years, they were epic. They were like big, ninety minute, right. two yes. hour long in the hot rec hall, and the parents crowded in and went early, and it was hot and packed, and they never left, and it was well done with the chorus and the dancers. They always had the cute boys with dressed up as girls with sure. the tennis balls. The parents <laughs> love that, and then they, you know, it was cute, and they put the makeup on them. Yeah, you know, of it was it was cute. And so parents love the, the uh, Jubilee, but I, I was just so afraid of doing that. So the show's over. We all go running back to the cabins. Al 
Leo, Harvey are walking around, Mickey saying, you know, they would say goodnight to each Kevin. Oh, Kevin, sure. one, all mm-hmm. in, all in, Alan. They would go around, and so they get to 13. 13, obviously, back in 1960. This was 69. Um, um, was the oldest Kevin. Right. The dad's lodge was the dad's lodge and not Kevin 14. And so we're all sitting on the porch, as we did every night. And Al or Denny or Mickey would come in and have a discussion with the older boys, just mm. spend a little more time with us. But they've got Leo with them. So the door swings open on the porch, and I'm sitting there. I'm still in the white face from the uh, from the cabaret number, and Leo walks in, looks at me, and says, Son, looks like you just faced Dizzy Dean. And I went, now I'm going to pass out again. Because <laughs> Leo's talking to me and coming up with something that's pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. Son and Dizzy Dean. And obviously this is 1969. Fast forward, it's 2016. I'm still talking about it that the manager of the Cubs was talking to me at camp. And that was the Jubilee, and that was 1969, and that was Leo. And it really comes up relatively often now because as the Cubs get better and they talk about the decline in 69, they (laughs) always go back to, yeah, and then Leo went to this boys' camp somewhere, and they folded after that. And then I'll jump in. I say, well, I have a story for you about that boys' camp. I was there. Leo was talking to me. That's amazing. And people always go, incredible. <laughs> and it really was kind of an incredible story. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I mean, I don't know who it would have to be today to, to compare. Like, I, I've heard guys talk about the Derosha story. It, it, it was so huge. I mean, that's huge. It was huge. Yeah. It was huge. And, and times were different, too, I, I think, a little bit. And people up there were very much into the Cubs, mm-hmm. and they were in the pennant race, and tanked, and Leo talked to me. It really was a funny thing. And I, it, honestly, it feels like just yesterday. And I also have the fear of being the MC. And I don't think I've ever been on stage since because I don't want <laughs> any part of that. It, when they got me in the Jubilees later, mm-hmm. I did a, a kind of a blackout skit where I didn't, I didn't sure. have to talk. I didn't have to sing. I just had to be on <laughs> sta- stage. Right. Yeah. I was just doing kind of <laughs> Elliot shtick. But yeah. I, I said, no more singing for this boy. I'm done with that. That's amazing. So that leads me to JC years. Ah, yes. So you're no longer a camper. Now you have a little right. responsibility. Uh, and it's you camper get paid? 66, 67, 68, 69, JC in 70. I thought it was fabulous. I liked everything about the next step more than the first step. Loved being mm. a camper. Loved being a JC. Loved it. All of a sudden, you know, I'm kind of, kind of in charge of sure. this. You know, there was... You know, I don't have to listen to the rules. I can kind of help set them. <laughs> I love that. Plus, I love the kids, and it was really kind of nice to be sleeping on the porch and to have kind of that, that uh, uh, role of authority. And I was relatively good at it because I think I liked the kids, and I engaged them, mm. and and I think they liked me back. And, and so the it was just kind of a nice natural progression to staff man. It worked out great. The downside was waiting tables. Oh, no, sure. you touch on that. <laughs> you wait tables postseason. Sure. But you don't wait tables like postseason. That. Right. <laughs> this was 45 minutes before every meal, set the tables, then eat, then wait the tables, then clear the tables. We were in the mess hall six hours a day. Mm. It was, well, hard work is a stretch for camp. It was a lot of work. Right. A lot of work. And we did it two years. And we'd have days off now and then. 
but it was a lot of work, and I didn't mind it, but looking back on it, it was a lot of work, and toward the end of the summer, you know, it was like, oh, you know, I'm glad, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the kitchen was great, and I got to, you know, I worked with Katie, mm-hmm. and Katie by then was tri- kind of in the twilight of her career, Sure, but I got to know Otto, who was spectacular. Yeah. Otto was spectacular, and so that was nice to be in the kitchen and hang with them. It was also funny because Ellen Weinberg would bring her babies up to camp as they were being born. Oh, sure, of course. And I remember she would bring them and feed them early with the JCs because she didn't want Nancy, I think Nancy, the youngest, Nancy? Yeah, the youngest mm-hmm. Weinberg, to disrupt Alan Pearl's lunch. Oh, sure, of She'd course. She'd bring them in early. So they, she would eat with the JCs, put the babies in the in the seat, and start feeding them, you know, the Gerber applesauce. <laughs> so now you got a table of you know fifteen JCs watching this. So we'd gravitate over there. Sure. You know, we'd never really seen a baby before, right, or of course. anybody feed a baby. So we'd say, Ellen, you know, can we try that? She, hey, sure. You know, this is have at it. So Ellen had fifteen babysitters at every meal. That's fantastic. Just happy. To feed and and the and and I remember we'd put the spoon in her ear and her eye. You know she'd cry and we and Ellen would laugh. It was funny. You know she had all these older brothers trying to right. feed the baby. But we so that we did that as a JC and we waited tables and it was hard work but it was fun and there was great camaraderie. Mm. And we had competition, who could set it the quickest, who could clear it the quickest. Who you know we'd put the food down, we would take the food back. You know it was like. <laughs> get out of here you know uh, i want to get out to the raft and i can get an extra 20 minutes if these kids are eating faster so we you learned how to be a more efficient waiter and then being a second year jc was nice because they had the staff waiters and i was selected to be second staff waiter dave mattisar was head staff i was second staff and there was a third staff and barry could have been third staff i don't really remember but head staff was a big deal because Alan Pearl picked who they wanted to be their server all summer. Sure. And I think Ricky Mattisar, Dave's older brother, was the year before. Mm. And then they gave it to Dave. It was a big deal. And the head waiter set the schedule for the waiters. He was kind of in charge. Gotcha. So I was second staff waiter, which was nice. But when you were waiting staff tables, <laughs> a lot more... <laughs> running back to the kitchen for extra sure. gravy, more sauce. Can you get me of this? Can you get me of that? Yeah. They'd linger over their meal oh, more. You couldn't rush them. So the time spent got actually greater. <laughs> but I knew that if you pay your dues, you know, part of camp was just you kind of have to work your way up the ladder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's sure. nothing wrong with hard work. And we worked hard. And so if I paid my dues as a second-year J.C., when it became my turn to be a counselor, I was done with it, and I could have people wait on me. Okay, there you go. Part one in the books, Kenny Rafi. As you can tell, fantastic stuff, and like I said, he came in like a house of fire. He knew what he wanted to say, had a ton of great stories right off the bat. We jump right back into it, uh, come back on Wednesday to hear part two, and we'll pick up right where we left off, right as he's becoming a senior counselor. Many, many more fun stories to come. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, as always, you know how, drop me an email, Christopher at org, 
or just swing by the website, campojibohistory.org, and check things out. A lot of new stuff has been going up now that I'm here and focused on the history project here in the North Shore of Chicago, which is lovely, by the way. Let me just say, now that I've got a couple of weeks under my belt here in uh, Ravinia, it is a delight. People are very nice. This has been my experience thus far. I haven't been to a lot of the restaurants yet, and admittedly, I don't wake up early enough to go to the coffee shop, but I'll get there eventually. But they do know me because I'm the guy who walks down the sidewalks having a cigar. 